Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, May 1st, 2023. I'm Lou DeVizio. I hope everyone had a chance to get out in the sun and the heat this weekend. If you had to work or you couldn't enjoy it the way that you would have liked to, don't worry. It's looking like we're going to have a long stretch of beautiful weather ahead. Also, you might have even more of an appreciation for the natural beauty around us after you listen to Friday's episode of the podcast. I absolutely loved it, and I'm sure you will too. Our Land's Laura Paskus speaks with professor and author Robin Wall Kimmerer about Dr. Kimmerer's work, decolonizing science, and hopes for the future. I can't recommend it enough. If you're listening to this episode, you can find Fridays just as easily. Just go to the podcast page. For now, let's get into the headlines in New Mexico. State leaders are demanding action from New Mexico State University after two student-athletes and a former coach filed a lawsuit against the school. The suit names three former NMSU basketball players and two ex-coaches alleging sexual assault against two former members of the team. Higher Education Department Cabinet Secretary Stephanie Rodriguez sent a letter to the MSU Board of Regents telling them to carry out an independent investigation covering, quote, all university-sponsored athletic programs, including the current leadership, coaches, and coaching staff, to identify the extent of misconduct and protect any student who comes forward with information or concerns without retaliation, end quote. That comes as three student-athletes at Eastern New Mexico University filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against their school, athletic director Paul Weir, women's basketball coach Megan De Los Reyes, and De Los Reyes' husband, Glenn De Los Reyes. He's accused of sexually assaulting the three plaintiffs. Late last week, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham announced she's pushing for anti-hazing legislation during the next legislative session. Leaders of the Navajo Nation are calling on the governor to withdraw her nomination of secretary for the state's Indian Affairs Department. We've told you about the criticisms surrounding James Mountain, former governor of San Ildefenso Pueblo. Mountain was indicted in 2008, but never convicted on charges of criminal sexual penetration, kidnapping, and aggravated battery against a household member. The case was dismissed in 2010, with the prosecution saying they had insufficient evidence to take the case to trial. Despite its dismissal, members of the state's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Relatives Task Force threatened resignation if Mountain was appointed. Now the Navajo Nation Council is unanimously demanding the same thing from the governor. In February, Navajo Nation President Boo Nigren wrote in a letter to the governor saying his people's voices, quote, are so often unheard on concerns like this, end quote. In a text to New Mexico In-Depth, a spokesperson for the governor says she does not plan to withdraw the appointment. For our first segment of the podcast this week, Gene and the Line Opinion panel react to the arrest of a teenage Albuquerque student who police say brought two handguns onto school grounds. Our panelists for the week are Catherine McGill, founder and director of the New Mexico Black Leadership Council, attorney Sophie Martin, and Dan Boyd, Capitol Bureau Chief at the Albuquerque Journal. An Albuquerque High School student remained locked up as of this taping after police say they found him with two handguns at a charter school here in Albuquerque. Prosecutors say the weapons are tied to more than a dozen shootings around the city, including a drive-by at Sandia High School. You might remember that. We talked about that at the table here. The 18-year-old student at La, La Academy de Esperanza is facing a weapons charge and another for receiving stolen property, but he's not charged in any of those shootings. Albuquerque has, as you know, a history of gun violence. And Kath, let me start here. I'm trying to slot this case, make more of it then it might be, or less of it, it's kind of hard to figure out. Is this an indicator of something about gun violence, about guns in schools? What's the big overall picture here 
when you, you think about two, student, two students in a high school with guns, what, what, what comes to mind? You know, I think, you know, what we see, mm -hmm. the, the programs that are targeting gun violence, the new um, DAs, you know, plan intervention in the schools to go and talk to mm -hmm. students about guns, um, you know, tells us that there is a real issue. This mm -hmm. is a real concern. I was just recently on a ride along with some um, Albuquerque police um, downtown oh, wow. on St. Patrick's Day, and it was just really um, a cautionary tale as we're going through parking lots and there are kids who are, you know, teens, 14 and 15, 16, sitting in cars, and, you know, what I'm being told is that we know they all have guns. Mm -hmm. You know, they are not even old enough to go into the clubs where at about 1.30 in the morning there will be all kinds of shooting mm -hmm. and things like that. And so the availability of those guns and just sort of the street cred that you get if you have a gun, some mm -hmm. not even, you know, uh, according to what we hear from um, APS officials, they weren't intending to do any harm with them at school, mm -hmm. but they're bringing them to school. And so we know that there's a problem. There are too many guns right. on the street, and we have to do something about the number of guns and the, the, the easy access to guns on Albuquerque streets and in the state of New Mexico. So the issue is about mm -hmm. uh, access to mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Let me, uh, Dan, the details of the story are disturbing, to say the least. The student uh, accused of trying to buy two 9mm handguns, ouch, from one student, later robbing that student of the handguns with the help of an accomplice while using a rifle of their own. Oh, come on, guys. The student then is accused of bringing the stolen handguns to school two days later, as Kathy mentioned, to sell to their classmates. A teacher overheard the conversation and reported them. Thank God for that teacher. Holy smokes. Uh, we hear a lot about hardening schools, metal detectors, things like that. Might this have been a, a case where that might have worked out? You know? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I think like Kathy said, I mean, it, it'd be nice to look at this as an isolated incident, but I don't think, right. you know, from what we've seen and the number of other, I think there's at least, what, 12 guns that have yes. been seized from yep. Albuquerque schools already this school year. That's right. Um, you know, I think legislators have tried to address, uh, you know, passing a law that there could be some liability for parents if, minors access a firearm, but clearly that's kind of an after-the-fact punishment. I mean, I think to try to prevent guns from getting in schools, I mean, whether that means, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, metal detectors at the front of schools, I mean, I, I'm not even sure that would work, but mm -hmm. trying to kind of get at the root of this problem and, and other bills at the legislature to kind of crack down even more on automatic weapons failed. So, you know, clearly it's, yeah. it's not a unanimous support for doing that, but it, it does seem like this uh, you know, this trend we're seeing of more guns in schools, and already we've seen, you know, disastrous results, tragic results right. as a result of that. Exactly right. Uh, Sophie, interestingly, Dan mentioned some legislation, House Bill 9, uh, uh, yeah, House Bill 9, sorry, which makes it a crime for a firearm to be negligently stored in a way that a minor could access it. All well and good. I don't think that really applies this, to this, this case. This doesn't apply here, <laughs> right. right? There's no suggestion that this is actually a parent, these are parents' right. firearms. Yep. Um, you know, I'm reminded of a couple of things. One is, we know that children do not have fully developed brains. They are not, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. sorry kids, mm -hmm. those of you who are watching the show tonight, um, they're not good at making, um, necessarily making good decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and yet we continue to make firearms accessible to a group uh, that I believe really should not have that access. Mm -hmm. 
And mm -hmm. so we chip away at the problem here, we chip away at the problem there. I think these laws are important. Right. There's no doubt in my mind about that. I th but I think going back to what Catherine was saying, we have a real access problem here. We have a glut of guns right. available, not just in New Mexico, across the but across the country. And this news about um, these kids in this high school, mm -hmm. um, it has to be viewed in the context of the shootings that we see, um, both by minors and by adults, mm -hmm. um, targeting folks in, in targeting victims yes. in schools. Yes. Um, the, the hardening that we've seen so far doesn't really seem to have done enough. Okay. And I think that, you know, the argument that hard, hardening is, and I'm not suggesting that this was your, what you were saying, that hardening a school is a, is a solution on its own mm -hmm. is just naive mm -hmm. um, and, and just plays into, I think, this idea um, that more meaningful restrictions can't be put in place. Mm -hmm. they, mm -hmm. they need to happen. Our country is calling out for this. It's interesting. I'm talking about people getting shot at, pulling into the wrong driveways oh. yeah. right now. This yes, is getting a little crazy, you. folks. Exactly right. Uh, to Dan's point a little bit ago, it's 14 incidents involving guns on school campuses this year. And APS Superintendent Scott Elder told the Journal last month the district has invested in fencing, locks, camera systems, and is considering weapon detection systems for schools. Your thoughts, Kathy McGill? So, making those schools a fortress? Mm -hmm. um, is that the answer? Um, I, I have to say that we have to do something. I sit on is it, is, several let me ask you this. school on, on your question, is it not unreasonable to expect a last check at the door with a metal detector? For a nine millimeter, I mean, we're talking nine millimeters. I think that's where we are. Okay. Um, how we got there is uh, just unfathomable. Mm -hmm. Like how we could allow, you know, these kinds of things to happen, and and I think the 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 larger question or the the question that we need to ask mm -hmm. is whose job is it to ah. stem this tide? Yes. And how many times do we need to say? Uh, to elected officials at the federal level, at the state level, at the city level, mm -hmm. do something. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so we keep asking. Are we at the end of the road on something. those asks? Have um, they done everything they possibly can with legislation? And I don't believe that, that everything that? has been done okay. that could possibly be done with legislation. Yeah. However, people are still, you know, talking about people's Second Amendment rights to bear arms. Mm -hmm. So at what point? Do we need to take a look at that and say we must do something because, you know, the access is the issue? Yeah, uh, the polling out there. I'm being very loose with this, but there is some support out there, Dan, for these kind of hardenings. You know, perhaps they're a reaction to what we're seeing around the country. Who knows? Uh, but there's also the idea that perhaps arming teachers might help with this a little bit, and I, it just gives me a reaction to tables, kind of <laughs> similar to what my gut on <laughs> the asking. Do we really want teachers shooting it out with students with nine millimeter? You see what I mean here? Is that the answer, Army yeah, teachers? Yeah, I mean, I, I maybe depending on your, your perspective on the right. issue, <laughs> I, but I, I certainly haven't seen that getting much traction in New Mexico, and it does right. seem like there's a lot of ways that could go very wrong. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think just this this issue that Kathy touched on, kind of the, the, this culture that kind of glorifies having guns, and right. and I think the the position we're in now, I mean, just there are so many guns out there, and then how do you right. you know how, how do you get that? How do you get them off the black market? That's I mean, right. and that's that that you know no easy answers to and that. A reminder: during the pandemic, the sales of handguns 
skyrocketed. Yeah. And now, now they're all, as Dan's mentioning, filtering out. I so. mean, there are some things mm -hmm. historically that we have seen made a difference. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the ban on assault rifles that unfortunately expired. Mm -hmm. I, I say unfortunately like that wasn't intentional. Right. Um, but that did expire. Right. Um, we saw a real increase, a, a very dramatic increase um, in guns mm -hmm. on the streets following the, the expiration of that legislation, that mm -hmm. law. Um, buyback programs seem so podunk, but they, they do serve to pull guns off the street. Mm -hmm. But these, those programs can only be effective if we're also limiting the access to guns at the origin. That's right. That's at right. the origin. Can I just, Please, can I just say that, mm -hmm. that, you know, 85% of teachers say that, you know, they don't want to carry a gun right. in school. That's, right. That's not what they're there for. That's right. And then, but, you know, why can't we look at what happens in other countries related to gun violence, ah. you know? You know, can we look to see what other countries have done, um, why they don't have the same kind of right. mass shootings that we have in the United States? Mm -hmm. yeah. Sophie, can I bounce back to you for a quick second? Yeah. Dan, uh, let's just get in on this too. Uh, for years, we heard concerns from the governor, legislators, the state's pretrial detention system mm -hmm. isn't what it should be, strict enough. But this arrested 18-year-old, who was one of the students on campus I mentioned earlier, is being held, doesn't appear to have a criminal record, right? and right. is being held after prosecutors filed a pretrial detention motion. Is that proof that the system isn't as lax as critics have claimed? Or is this a I mean, I think it's a sign that okay. the prosecutors were successful in putting together the, the, you know, the argument to keep him behind bars. Mm -hmm. that, does that there mean something There are many moving pieces, like the yeah. law does not work in the absence of action on the part, in this case, of the prosecution. So I, I, I think, um, I find it heartening that they were able to, to, I don't know, heartening is the word that I want, but right. it, but you know this looks like a circumstance in in which all the correct steps were taken. Mm -hmm. Is this the kind of circumstance, Dan, where you've got someone on a hook, an 18-year-old? Maybe you make a point here, a big public point about what it is to be of age, but bringing a gun on campus. If there's no consequences here, the public's not going to be too happy about it. If I was a parent at this high school. I'm looking for consequences here, bringing two nine millimeters into a school campus setting. Yeah, and I think there's been a lot of political attention on, on pretrial detention, and obviously mm -hmm. there's been cases where judges have released individuals who've gone on to commit other, mm -hmm. and even if those are the, the very small minority of cases, obviously they get a lot of attention, and, right. and uh, rightfully so. I mean, I think judges do try to uh, you know, weigh all the evidence in a case, and obviously what prosecutors put in front of them, so mm -hmm. sometimes, um, you know, and, and they use the Arnold tool and things like that ah, to right. make these decisions. But I, I think on a gut level, I mean, sometimes there's kind of a, a common sense factor, right. you know, certainly right. in a case like this, it seems like, mm -hmm. you know, for other parents to have someone like that being released pending right. trial, you know, would be, Oof. yeah, yeah nerve-wracking to say the least. <laughs> Unreal. Sophie makes a good point earlier about all of this. It, it just, we got to get our arms around guns. We just have to get our arms around it in our town. We're suffering. People are suffering from violence. There is rip, ripple effects when someone is a victim of gun violence that lasts for generations. And we have to think about that. So thanks to our line opinion panel on that one. This past week, Gene and the panel also took a closer look at a new report alleging dozens of instances of abuse and neglect by developmental disability caretakers. It's something Dan Boyd reported on for the Albuquerque Journal. You'll hear Gene reference that during this segment, and we've posted a link to the story in the description of this podcast. Here's Gene. Welcome back to our line opinion panel. Now, over the course of one month, the New Mexico Department of Health conducted more than 6,800 unannounced in-person wellness, wellness visits excuse me, for clients 
receiving services through developmental disabilities waivers. Now, the DD waiver, I'm going to talk about here in a second. Now, the checks flagged about 70 sites for reports of abuse, neglect, exploitation, or other more benign shortcomings. And Dan, you wrote a great article about this last week for the Albuquerque Journal. Can you start by explaining this system for us briefly? What is the DD waiver program and why does it exist at all here in New Mexico? What's going on with this? Yeah, so the, the DD waiver program is a program to provide services and assistance to individuals with developmental disabilities, with autism, right. things like that. I mean, a lot of these folks are you know, still living at home, but uh, their, their providers are a parent or another relative. Mm -hmm. um, for a long time, the program had a really long waiting list to get in um, mm -hmm. you know, for years. How long? I'm curious. You know, I, I don't even, I, I should know that, but it's, I mean. It was notorious. Decades. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, I had the feeling. Yeah, okay. and so there's been a, a concerted effort, especially given our revenue situation, to really try and get rid of that waiting list. I, I think, which, you know, good intentions to try to yeah. allow more people to participate. Um, you know, I think the pandemic then played a role too. They weren't, folks weren't able to go in the field and do mm -hmm. their usual kind of checks and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, what we saw about a month ago, uh, you know, apparently some, some pretty bad abuse cases and we still don't know the exact details of those cases yet, but that prompted the, uh, the Lujan Grisham administration to say, we're gonna do these home visit for everyone involved in the program and, and make sure they're okay and, and check out the settings. And so they, and I think they wanted, there was a push to get this done quickly. Um, you know, to do that in a month is mm -hmm. pretty ambitious. Yeah, um, so the story I, I wrote last week, you know, it, we heard reports from different individuals that, that some of the people who were showing up at their houses may not have necessarily had, had the training or, or the background uh. in the program. And so to have people showing up at your door and, and demanding to, wow. to be let in and, and to inspect new conditions and to talk with the, mm. the per, you know, the, the individuals and. Now these are DOH employees? They're, they're DOH okay. employees, but other agencies as well. They, they oh, pulled no from, from uh. other state departments as well. Uh, wow. You know, I've heard um, from a few state workers who were involved in this and they were just told, here's your list of houses to go to, uh, not given a lot of background and, and you're gonna, you know, work as many hours as it takes to, you know, to clear wow. this backlog. And, uh, and obviously, I, I think some of the issues that, that then resulted, you know, maybe yeah. predictably, but yeah, folks yeah, showing it, up. The question begs about the quality of the visits, if you're not, you know, right. if that's not your thing. Right, and wow. my understanding, even some of these issues that were flagged, um, you know, certainly there could be some serious abuse cases, but some of the other ones were, uh, you know, a defective fire alarm or things like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, even some of the state employees I've heard from, that, you know, say they didn't know what to look for, what questions to ask, you know, to even, so even if there was abuse going on at a at house, you. you know, would they, would they even know how to identify that? Sophie, can I swear to you on that? Yeah. Do we know the kind of training these folks had to look for signs like Dan's well, talking I mean, about somebody, here? Somebody knows. Yeah. Um, but that has not, to my, under, to my knowledge, been released to the public. And so, yeah. you know, that's unclear to me. I think, too, of, just as struck as Dan was talking about, mm -hmm. um, the vulnerability of, of some of the people who are on the DD waiver program, mm -hmm. um, where something disruptive like a, a person coming in uh, who they don't know unannounced, I'm talking about about the individuals who have developmental disabilities, mm -hmm. how very disruptive that can be mm -hmm. um, and may have been in these circumstances. And right. and if the, the folks coming in don't have training in how to, um, how to you know, not exacerbate any issues that may already exist, mm -hmm. that, that that could have been quite counterproductive. Mm -hmm. I really understand and appreciate the desire to get this done quickly, but it, it does feel um, like it wasn't, it wasn't fully thought through. Right. And th these reports are really um, 
concerning. It's almost like a numbers game, Kathy, meaning, oh, we did this amount, but how we did it is really not the issue <laughs> or the quality of the, of the how. And it, but let me go back to something Dan I was mentioning with Dan, State Health Secretary Patrick Allen, quote, there is some training we do put them through before they do these visits. We're pulling people who have a familiarity with the program and possible signs of abuse. Are you buying that? I mean, how much training could one get in a short term to be able to recognize a very complicated thing like abuse? It's not a movie. People don't show up the front door with a black eye and say, you know, I've just been hit. Right. You gotta have some training in these things. You know, I want to preface what I say by um, saying that we need this program. Yes, it thank is you. very, very mm -hmm. beneficial. Uh, if anyone has ever, you know, been a caregiver for someone with severe developmental disabilities, you understand that this program is needed. Mm -hmm. The supports are necessary, and I recognize, as Sophie and Dan have said, that that we did need to do the inspections. Mm -hmm. The problem comes with government programs where it's so reactionary. It's right. Like we know that there's an issue now. We got to do these hurry up huddles right. and go say, let's get a whole bunch of people out there and say, look, we solved it. Not true. Um, we needed to know that the people who are going into the mm -hmm. homes have the ability to look at what's happening there and make a critical analysis of what needs to happen you know, or that mm -hmm. this is a home that is, you know, things are being handled well. And to have people showing up at the door who may not be trained um, is potentially detrimental to both the people in the home and to that staffer right. who's right. going out, who is not properly protected, who doesn't right. understand what they need to be looking for. And if they have given the kind of training that would be necessary, then please tell us what that was so that we can have the confidence right. to say, yeah. to support you because we understand that this is a program that is very needed. Mm -hmm. Doing 6,800 uh, site visits in a month you know, I think, you know, maybe they could, uh, they probably showed them how to use Google Maps or, you know, things like that, how to get to the house. Right. But what did you do beyond that? You made a point about reporting out. Mm -hmm. Are these people reporting out these 6,800 visits? And what do they say? I mean, there's all kinds of things here mm -hmm. that just feels, Dan, like it's just, uh, like Kathy mentioned, just a big push. And you spoke with someone who cares for her sister with Down syndrome. She said the state employee who showed up unannounced, check in for, threatened her. And what all did she tell you about that interaction? What was that all about? Yeah, I, I, and I've now talked to a few other people who had similar experiences and, and these employees showing up and maybe having good intentions, but their instructions were, you know, you will allow us into the house to inspect. And, wow. and if not, you know, threatening to call law enforcement. And especially if <laughs> someone shows up unannounced on your, you know, mm -hmm. in the evening at mm -hmm. your house and you don't know for sure who they are and their identity. Right. and. I mean, I can understand the, the reluctance. I mean, this woman I spoke to said she felt like a, a criminal in her own home, you know, and, mm -hmm. and not knowing, you know, exactly what they're looking for or, or you know. Right. Um, I, I mean, I can certainly see the, the trauma from that. And, sure. and I can't remember who mentioned, but just that a lot of these folks do, I think, thrive on routine, too. And to have that really yeah. upended, you know, yes. and um, disrupted, I think, can be problematic. I, I even heard that, you know, there may have been some visits by Spanish-speaking homes with uh, state employees who don't speak Spanish and, you know, so things like that where it's... I hadn't thought about that. You know, just oh that, that language barrier and adding kind of to that, that fear of what, what's going on and what's mm -hmm. happening. So mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, it'll be, we'll see what happens next now that they've conducted this round of, right. um, you know, and, and there may have been some cases that, that should have been 
uh, monitored more closely right. before, and, and I would expect we might see criminal charges there. But mm -hmm. I, I think the way these were, were carried out, you know, it does raise some red flags. Interesting points there. And Sophie, back to those uh, 70 residential sites I mentioned in the sub. Yes. Uh, 70 were flagged. Allegations range, range from possible abuse, of course, to missing batteries and smoke alarms. Uh, drastically different offenses. Should the criteria for flags used by DOH be a little more nuanced to you? It does feel that way, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Huh. I mean, if it can be if it can be resolved with a trip to the hardware store, that's right. um, <laughs> that's different than these more troubling cases. Right. And and it may be that internally the Department of Health does have mm -hmm. a system for ranking those, but um, and prioritizing them. But uh, again not shared with us right. and so we really don't we don't Thank have you for that mentioning that. Oh, is it within our rights as taxpayers or whatever to ask for some kind of reporting out on this? I mean, they stepped into this. It's not CYFD, DOH stepped into Thank this. Thank you for saying that. They did step into this yeah. and the, it, it feels to me like they were unprepared to provide Thank the you. level of transparency that the community, right. um, you know, would ask for. Um, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things I was thinking about with the training issue is um, we don't we don't know what the training was. We also don't know what qualifications were necessary. So, I mean, it kind of sounds to me like one of the qualifications was that you were already on the state's payroll. Okay, so that's step one. But you know, what were the other things that were necessary in that's in right. order to get um, right. these people out in the field? Interesting, Dandy. Have you heard from others since your story ran? I have heard. I've heard yeah. from a number of other providers, and like I mentioned, from a few uh, state employees who haven't wanted to speak on the record, but oh, wow. who have shared some of their own concerns about how this was done and how mm -hmm. the instructions or protocols were kind of shifting as the program went, um, wow. you know, which is problematic as well. The, the wow. state did eventually start, when they're reporting the, the numbers, distinguishing between possible abuse and neglect and then these yeah. environmental factors. So they did make that change, but yeah, we still don't know exactly how with the follow up on those, you know, mm -hmm. and what's going to be mm -hmm. be done exactly to, uh, you know, I, I was told that they were all referred for further investigation, but you know, exactly what that exactly means. Exactly right. You know, let's get real here. When people come to the front door, if there's situations like abuse, these kind of people are very good at hiding things, mm -hmm. right? That's what they do. And so you have to have a very good radar for that kind of thing. You can't walk in with a training list of things and sort of watch for their reaction to questions. You got to know what's going on here. So. I gotta wonder, if any follow-up coming up down the road on this? would be very interesting to read, Dan. Thank you for your work on this with the Albuquerque Journal. It's really eye-opening, good stuff there. Finally on the podcast today, reaction to the decision from prosecutors to drop the involuntary manslaughter charge against Alec Baldwin. Prosecutors say they need more time to review new facts in the deadly Rust film set shooting, and they've also pushed back the next hearing in armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed's case. Prosecutors have dropped the charge against actor and producer Alec Baldwin in the deadly shooting of the Rust cinematographer Helena, Helena Hutchins. They dismissed the charge, quote, without prejudice, end quote. Now, film armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed is now the lone defendant in the case and faces a fourth-degree felony count of involuntary manslaughter. Now, a pretrial hearing for her has been delayed from mid-May to mid-August, and Sophie let me start here. What does it mean for a case to be, quote, dismissed without prejudice? 
What should the public take from that move by prosecutors? Well, I think there, there are a couple things to note. The, mm -hmm. f the first is that the prosecutor is reserving the right to refile the case. Mm -hmm. And so they're saying, we're not going to move forward right now, mm -hmm. but it is possible mm -hmm. that circumstances would um, necessitate filing again in the future, either the same charges or, mm -hmm. or different charges, but they're reserving the right to, to file on the same charges. Mm -hmm. um, and this is pretty typical, I think, in situations where there's an evolving case uh, and they don't okay. quite know what evidence might come forward, you know, come, be brought forth in the future. So, And, um, and the, the, the two folks that are on the case now made that point. We're yes. really looking at a lot of evidence now. Yes, and okay. I think that that's an important thing to note mm -hmm. is, that, is that new evidence is rumored to have come to the mm -hmm. fore, and there's some great reporting mm -hmm. um, that you know that helped to, to sort of explain that to the mm -hmm. to the community. Um, but uh, you know, we're not going to just sort of jump to conclusions. We're going to we're going to do the due diligence that's necessary in order to make sure mm -hmm. um, that the charges that we're bringing. And I sort of speaking in the voice of the prosecutor, which I don't normally do, but um, <laughs> the the charges that are brought forward, um, prosecutors want to make sure that they're ones that they have the likelihood of right. winning. Right? right? You know, they've got to get right. through several steps. Yeah. Now, part of the purpose of um, of dismissing the charges with prejudice, without prejudice at this point, mm -hmm. and, and I guess I'll just say maybe this was implied, but if you do it with prejudice, that means we're done here. Gotcha. Um, without prejudice, part of it is that it stops, stops the clock on New Mexico's speedy trial requirements. Ah. And so there's a certain amount of time that can elapse from when you bring charges to when the trial happens. I and see. you know, there's a little flexibility in there, but but they, they're basically saying, we're gonna stop the clock on this one because we don't wanna rub, run up against that limitation. Right. And if you look at me and ask me how many days that is, I will say, I forgot that right after law school because <laughs> I don't work in I don't work in criminal, uh, mm -hmm. criminal law. Mm -hmm. um, Dan, interesting, um, Sophie mentioned about new things that are coming out, the unnamed source told Phaedra Haywood at the Santa mm -hmm. Fe, New Mexican, that the revolver that Mr. Baldwin used, uh, the deadly shot, had been fitted with a new hammer at some point. That's a big deal because until this point, the FBI report on record has stated the gun couldn't have fired by itself. And of course, this is to be determined later in the, in the court case, but that's an interesting little twist there because we, we've sort of been looking at that gun and how Mr. Baldwin handled it but not necessarily the weapon itself. What does this say to you with this information? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think that goes to Sophie's point a little mm -hmm. bit about this evolving uh, evidence in the case. Right. You know, um, it, it does raise some questions in my mind, kind of about the initial investigation too. But, mm -hmm. but clearly, maybe some new evidence has come to light. Uh, you know, about this gun and exactly if it could have fired. You know, in it accidentally or, mm -hmm. or not. Um, so I mean, that that may well be behind kind of some of this decision. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think politically it, it kind of raises the question whether the, the DA might have gotten a, out, uh, a little in front of her skis a little bit, yeah. you know, with the, right. the initial charges. Um, yeah. And so that'll the enhancement be... enhancement that was dropped. Right. That right. right. Yeah. yeah, so a lot of that, I mean, kind of from a political pr perspective. Yeah. But from a legal perspective, I, I, I think the special prosecutors, the two that are now on the case, seem to be maybe proceeding a little cautiously with this while, right. you know, while still leaving the door open for, for what kind of evidence does emerge That's with, a good with point the gun. There. Uh, Carrie Morrison and Jason Lewis, of course, we haven't named them later uh, earlier. Thank you for doing that, uh, special prosecutors. And um, does this feel more legitimate to you, the, the case, these people are on board? It's, the tone has changed a lot, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think mm -hmm. it, it sort of, the prosecutor became the story. And, right. you know, all of the, <laughs> the, the media circuits that was mm -hmm. uh, involved in it. Uh, now it seems like perhaps they're doing something that's a little more mm -hmm. cautious, but, the clock doesn't stop on public opinion right. related to what's happening right now. And it looks like, 
you know, Alec Baldwin is being let off because he is a celebrity and, you know, they just announced that, you know, uh, from their perspective that, well, it's over, right. you know. That's right. Um, so that's, that became the story that the, the charges were dropped mm -hmm. is, you know, what they announced to everyone and that's what people, you know, start to see and then they question that. Mm -hmm. So I do hope that, that people will not forget Helena Hudgens, mm -hmm. who Thank lost you. her life. That's mm -hmm. right through no fault of her own, and somebody is responsible. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you, let me, on that very point, Kathy, Mud Gill, thank you so much. Sophie, let me turn to you. I get this question a lot. We have a, we have a person who pled out or, you know, apparently got a plea deal. Correct. Can those be turned around? Because I've had people ask me, like, does this guy know something? And why was he allowed to do this deal and can we undo the deal? Okay, so the majority of mm -hmm. cases actually do end up in, in plea agreements. Okay. And so I, I think that it is um, short-sighted to, to look at that and say, well, that's the sign of some sort of smoking gun. Right. I mean, it could be something as simple as um, he didn't have the resources to, right. to fully depend himself, yep. felt that he wasn't gonna get um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to in any way impugn the mm -hmm. expertise um, of the public defenders, but they will have been talking with him if that's who he was working with, or I, I actually don't know whether he's a private counsel or not. Right. Um, but there is a calculation that is made in many criminal trials where the person says, like, I can end this now, right. um, and, and all that means, or I can go to trial and there are greater risks to me. Right. So, so I do think it's worth mm -hmm. keeping in mind that the majority of, of criminal cases, we you know, we do see these offers for plea deals, right. and we often do see um, see that they are taken. Does it make a difference, again, a layman's question, yeah. does it make a difference that the plea deal was made with the district attorney but not with these special prosecutors? Does that, does that make a difference in, in, in the legal world? I don't believe that it will. Okay. I don't believe that it will. Okay. That's, that's actually an interesting wrinkle that I haven't, yeah. I haven't thought about before. Interesting point, because people are speaking, Kathy, in sort of this cryptic language now, like we're backing up a little bit, we're taking a look at some other mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. I, are we anticipating some major thing to come down here? I'm not sure if personally I can see something. Can you see something that these folks can come up with? I don't see anything. <laughs> it's been almost two years now, yeah. and you know certainly there have been investigations. I hope those investigations were uh, comprehensive <clears throat> and they, they mm -hmm. have all the information that they needed to make a decision about prosecution. So um, I don't see anything new. Yeah. When you think about it, Dan, uh, we've had the state police investigate, we've had the FBI investigate, the DA's office has investigated, sure, we've had a lot, the sheriff's office, thank you, mm -hmm. Santa Fe Sheriff's office has investigated, everyone has investigated, but we have all these different angles of attack here. Mm -hmm. There's not a single cohesive line of reasoning here, which is why we go to court, of course, to suss these things out. But what does it say about the case? Is it really that complicated that we just, all these investigators are coming up with different, different conclusions? I mean, Maybe it is, I, I, um, but I, I think also when you get that many jurisdictions involved, yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, everybody maybe has their own little take or their own focus of an investigation. Um, you know, it doesn't seem like it mm -hmm. uh, should be that complicated, like, like Kathy mentioned, two years almost after the fact. Um, but clearly there's still some unresolved issues there. Mm -hmm. um, I mm -hmm. mean, I was interested that they're going on with filming, filming the show after all this, not in New Mexico, but right. in, in Montana, I believe. So, well, Like that, it never that's, happened. Well, right. that's that worth weird. noting that that yeah. is an element of the civil case yes. in uh, which Miss um, Hutchins' husband 
in order to receive a payout on the civil case, he is now a producer on the show. Mm -hmm. um, he's, and I think this is actually, I, I, I don't mean this facetiously, I am quite confident that he is a producer who does not have any responsibility for firearms on the set. And it's, it's worth noting that this is also an element of it, is the, mm -hmm. the sort of who has responsibility for what. That's right, even as a producer. Even not necessarily as, as exactly, a person handling the Exactly, even as a producer, That's yeah. Right. Right. Interesting point there. I daily bounce Hugh, and I want Kathy to get on this. Uh, the media. Um, is it reasonable at this point to talk about what the responsibility we have to give the entire picture to the public in some way? But this is an evolving case as well. You can only report so much that you have the facts, but in a high profile celebrity driven case, that doesn't happen, does it? It's a circus. Yeah. It's a media circus. How did we do on this one, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, and I haven't, uh, with the caveat, I haven't covered this case yeah. uh, myself, but some of my colleagues have. And, mm -hmm. and I think when you have the international media mm -hmm. showing up for, uh, and, and I think some of the local authorities maybe aren't, aren't used to that <laughs> kind <laughs> of level of, of media, yep. very aggressive kind That's of. Right. Um, That's right. So I don't know. I, I think there have been some things that maybe have been, um, you know, some headlines that may be a little yeah. stronger than the fact, and there's more nuances to the case, especially yep. with uh, the case being, you know, dismissed, but possibly being refiled. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that the media, uh, I think the local media did a good job. I'm not sure whether those nuances were really conveyed to, in some yeah. of the popular press. I appreciate you I saying it that way. I, sleep yeah. Yeah. I, I agree <laughs> with that, actually. Good job there, Dan. Thanks again to the line panel, as always. Be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics the line covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages, and catch up on any episode you might have missed on the PBS app or the Roku or Smart TV. Thanks to everyone who contributed to the podcast this week. And of course, thank you, as always, for listening. Keep an eye on our social media pages. That's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and YouTube. Throughout the week, we'll be posting updates and other news items leading up to our show on Friday night. Thanks again, everyone. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio from Monday, May 1st, 2023. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.